Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Sunday, February 17th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. Congress makes a deal to keep the government open. But wall funding falls short of the president's request. The answer is no, I'm not. I'm not happy. Firing back, President Trump declared a national security crisis at the border to access money to build a wall, brushing off critics who say it's unconstitutional. So it gave the presidents the power. There's rarely been a problem. They signed it. Nobody cares. But that's not so. In this case, Democrats and some Republicans are trying to stop the president. Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons and Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd will weigh in. Plus, the stunning 60 Minutes interview with former acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe and his charge that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein brought up the possibility of invoking the 25th Amendment against President Trump. We asked the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, about it. The underlying accusation is beyond stunning. All this and analysis on the news of the week is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to get to today and we're going to begin with Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham He joins us from Germany, where he is attending the Munich Security Conference. Sir, I want to get right to this conversation my colleague Scott Pelley had on 60 Minutes with uh, former acting FBI director Andrew McCabe, where he described a conversation about the 25th Amendment, the mechanism through which to uh, push the president out of office. And he said it was brought up to him by the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein. A discussion of the 25th Amendment was was simply Rod raised the issue and discussed it with me in the context of thinking about how many other cabinet officials might support such an effort. Rosenstein was actually openly talking about whether there was a majority of the cabinet who would vote to remove the president. That's correct. Counting votes or possible votes. What seemed to be coursing through the mind of the deputy attorney general was getting rid of the president of the United States, Well, one way or another. I can't confirm that. But what I can say is the deputy attorney general was definitely very concerned about the president, about his capacity, and about his intent at that point in time. How did he bring up the idea of the 25th Amendment to you? Honestly, I don't remember. He, it was just another kind of topic that he jumped to in the midst of a, 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 of a wide-ranging conversation. Seriously? I mean, yeah. Just another topic? Yeah. Senator, that's a tremendous allegation to make. Have you ever asked Rod Rosenstein if, in fact, that conversation happened? 
Well, he's publicly denied it, but the whole point of Congress existing is to provide oversight of the executive branch. So through good reporting by 60 Minutes, there's an allegation by the acting uh, FBI director at the time that the deputy attorney general was uh, basically trying to do an administrative coup, take the president down through the 25th Amendment process. The deputy attorney general denies it. So I promise your viewers the following, that we will have a hearing about who's telling the truth, what actually happened. Mr. Cabe, you, you remember, was dismissed from the FBI for leaking information to the press. So you got to remember the source here. There has been some parsing, though, of whether these were extended discussions versus conversations about the 25th Amendment. Yeah. Right. Do you know whether those conversations have taken place? No, but I think everybody in the country needs to know if it happened. It's stunning to me that one of the chief law enforcement officers of the land, the acting head of the FBI, would go on national television and say, oh, by the way, I remember a conversation with the deputy attorney general about trying to find if we could replace the president under the 25th Amendment. We're a democracy. People enforce the law, can't take it in their own hands. And was this an attempted bureaucratic coup? I don't know. I don't know who's telling the truth. I know Rosenstein's uh, vehemently denied it, but we're going to get to the bottom of it. I do know there was a lot of monkey business about FISA warrants being issued against Carter Page, about dossiers coming from Russia that were unverified. Mr. Mueller is going to look at the Trump campaign, as he should, to see if they violated any laws during the 2016 election. And I'm going to do everything I can to get to the bottom of the Department of Justice FBI behavior toward President Trump and his campaign. But, but by even framing it as you just did there, Senator, are you concerned that by investigating the investigators, you are adding uh, to some damage uh, of the credibility of the FBI? Quite the opposite. If it happened, we need to clean it up. The FBI has gotten off track in the past. It's one of the greatest organizations in the world. The Hoover years uh, have proven to be pretty dark periods for the FBI. The latter part of the Hoover days where politicians were being blackmailed. There's no organization beyond scrutiny. There's no organization that can't withstand scrutiny. And the FBI will come out stronger but we got to get to the bottom of it. What are people to think after they watch 60 Minutes when they hear this accusation by the acting deputy, uh, acting FBI director that the deputy attorney general encouraged him to try to find ways to count votes to replace the president? That can't go uh, unaddressed, and it will be addressed. That's what oversight is all about. Will you subpoena McCabe and Rosenstein to appear? How can I not if that's what it takes? I mean, you're doing your job. The First Amendment allows you to ask questions of the most powerful people in the country. I know he's selling a book, and we need to take with a grain of salt maybe what Mr. McCabe is telling us. But he went on national television and made an accusation that floors me. You know, I can imagine if the shoe were on the other foot, this were, we're talking about getting rid of President Clinton, it'd be uh, front page news all over the world. Well, we're going to find out what happened here, and the only way I know to find out is to call the people in under oath and uh, find out you know, through questioning who's telling the truth because the underlying accusation is beyond stunning. I want to play another clip from that interview for you. What was it specifically that caused you to launch the counterintelligence investigation? It's many of the same concerns that cause us to be concerned about a national security threat. And the idea is... If the president committed obstruction of justice, fired the director of the, of the FBI, 
to negatively impact or to shut down our investigation of Russia's malign activity and possibly in support of his campaign, as a counterintelligence investigator, you have to ask yourself, why would a president of the United States do that? So all those same sorts of facts cause us to wonder, is there an inappropriate relationship, a connection between this president and our most fearsome enemy, the government of Russia. Senator, you voiced support from the Mueller probe in the past. Listening to what McCabe just described there, a a troubling pattern of behavior that he, as a a lifetime investigator, saw as a, a, a troubling fact pattern, led him to open a counterintelligence investigation into the president of the United States. Can you understand why he came to that conclusion? I can understand that the American people will get an answer to the question from Mr. Mueller. What I can understand is why Mr. McKay would meet with Page and Strzok to discuss their hatred for President Candidate Trump, talking about taking an insurance policy out in case the election went different than they want. So Mueller will tell us about what Trump did or didn't do. I'm going to tell the country about McCabe and the people at the Department of Justice and how they behaved. Did they take the law in their own hands? Did they abuse the FISA warrant process because they had a political agenda? Did their hatred of Trump go so far that they abandoned their role of being law enforcement agents and become advocates for a political cause? We're going to get to the bottom of that. But you recognize there that McCabe is laying out the the grounds of what he saw as an obstruction of justice attempt. Mr. Mueller will look at that, but I think McCabe, Strzok, and Page had a political bias, a political agenda, and I find it odd that the dossier that was used to get the warrant against Carter Mm -hmm. Page, prepared by a foreign agent paid for by the Democratic Party, that they knew to be unreliable, was used on four separate occasions to get a warrant. And I want to know why Comey told the president, here's a dossier, we've got it, we can't verify any of it, we want you to know about it. And that same document was used by the FBI and the Department of Justice under oath to tell the court, this is reliable information, gives us a warrant based on this document. I hope your viewers understand that the rule of law works both ways. Somebody's got to watch those who watch us. And I intend to watch what McCabe uh, and, and his crowd did during the 2016 election. The president just declared a national emergency in regard to getting the funds for his border wall. In terms of getting yeah. those funds, though, through this emergency action, there's about $3.6 billion of it right. uh, that could come from military construction efforts, <clears throat> including construction of a right. middle school in Kentucky, housing for military families, improvements for bases like Camp Pendleton and Hanscom Air Force Base. Aren't you concerned that some of these projects that were part of uh, legislation that you helped approve in Congress are now going to possibly be cut out? Well, the president will have to make a decision where to get the money. Let's just say for a moment that he took some money out of the military construction budget. I would say it's better for the middle school kids in Kentucky to have a secure border. We'll get them the school they need. But right now, we've got a national emergency on our hands. Opioid addiction is going through the roof in this country. Thousands of Americans died last year and dying this year because we can't control the flow of drugs into this country, and all of it's coming across the border. So Through the dangers presented by a broken to the, border to, to Customs me, and Border Patrol, though. 
<clears throat> but both. It's both. It's not just one. For every for every one we get, God knows how much we miss. Do you, don't you think Congress has ceded too much power to the executive branch? Do you think that you need to more sharply define what constitutes a national emergency so that future presidents can't interpret it as they like? Good question. I think that every member of Congress has watched three presidents send troops to the border. Bush, Obama, now Trump. Not one of us have complained about deploying forces to the border to secure the border. It's pretty hard for me to understand the legal difference between sending troops and having them build a barrier. What disappoints me is on President Obama's watch, as a Republican, I voted for a $44 billion border security package, nine billion of which included barriers. Hmm. 2006, all of us voted for the Secure Fence Act. And we're talking about steel barriers, not a concrete wall. And unfortunately, when it comes to Trump, uh, the Congress is locked down and will not give him what we've given past presidents. So unfortunately, he's got to do it on his own. And I support his decision to go that route. Well, perhaps in the future we can talk about sharpening uh, what constitutes an emergency. But before I let you go, you made a pitch from the stage there at Munich for foreign uh, uh, troops to be committed to Syria alongside American forces. Uh, How many U.S. forces are needed to stay there? And has President Trump actually made that commitment to you? Well, this, uh, thank you for asking, Margaret. Uh, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria has been destroyed. It has been defeated. All the work is not yet done. Remnants of ISIS are lethal. Uh, we need a follow-on presence post-caliphate destruction. The good news, we can do this with a fraction of American forces we've had in Syria in the past. The real good news is Europeans are willing to contribute because their cities have been attacked from Syria. The caliphate in Syria has caused thousands of deaths inside of Europe. I think just a fraction, a couple of hundred compared to 2,700, would be enough to get Europeans to contribute to the stabilizing force to make sure ISIS doesn't come back like it did in Iraq, to make sure that Turkey and the Kurds don't go to war, to keep them apart, and to make sure Iran doesn't come in and take over when we leave. So I've never felt better about the outcome in Syria with a small contingent of Americans. A lot of Europeans will come in and help fill in the gap. A very small down payment to secure ISIS never comes back. We've gone from thousands of troops in Iraq and Syria down now to a couple of hundred in Syria. Congratulations, Mr. President. The job is not yet done, but we've done a hell of a job destroying the caliphate. Senator Graham, thank you. We want to turn now to another attendee at the Munich Security Conference, Delaware Democrat Chris Coons. You now have heard the former acting FBI director come public after leaving office about what he saw as grounds for discussion of the 25th Amendment. Uh, What do you think of making those details public now? Uh, Well, Margaret, um, as you heard from Senator Graham, this will almost certainly be taken up by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, But what's striking to me about this conference, and frankly around the world, uh, is the way in which President Trump's abrupt decision to withdraw from Syria uh, has really unsettled our core allies because he did so without consulting with any of our allies. A candidate, Donald Trump, ran as someone who would be unconventional, uh, who would break the mold and be unpredictable, and he has certainly overperformed in that category. But what is striking to me about uh, the 60 Minutes reporting 
uh, about the conversations that are alleged to have happened at the highest levels of our law enforcement community uh, is that folks who were career professionals were troubled enough by what they saw in terms of uh, President Trump's actions with regard to Russia uh, that they felt compelled to open a counterintelligence investigation. I think that should give all of us pause. McCabe himself has uh, been questioned in terms of his own personal behavior. He was fired after an IG investigation uh, found that he lied or lacked candor four times uh, under oath. So do you question the credibility of his claims? Look, the most important thing in my mind is that Robert Mueller be able to complete his investigation without interference. If we also need to have some uh, sunshine, some disinfectant here about everything that led to the beginning and the pursuit of that investigation. Um, that strikes me as appropriate. So to be clear, when your colleague Senator Graham was talking about wanting to, on the Judiciary Committee, investigate things like uh, abuse of, of, of foreign surveillance uh, and, and the grounds under which uh, warrants were obtained, you support all of that? Uh, my hope is that Chairman Graham will be open to calling a number of witnesses who, based on previous testimony, also need to come in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. We should not be pursuing just one theory uh, or one line of investigation here. We should be looking at all the matters that are appropriate for oversight by the Senate Judiciary Committee. From what you heard uh, from McCabe himself, the, the, the pattern he was describing, is that an appropriate uh, response or an appropriate potential use of the 25th Amendment? Uh, well, I can't speak to that, having not heard the entire interview. Um, it is alarming um, that there were apparently folks at the highest levels uh, of our government considering whether or not our president is unfit to serve. Um, I don't think that this, frankly, rises to the level of some deep state conspiracy or a serious attempt at uh, what Senator Graham called an administrative coup. Um, I suspect that once this is fully discussed, uh, it'll be clear that this was a brief or passing conversation that's been taken out of context, but it does deserve scrutiny. Do you think there should be uh, a joint resolution, an attempt by Congress to stop the president from, from going forward with this uh, emergency declaration? Well, given that what President Trump is trying to do, to build a a big wall between the United States and Mexico to meet a campaign promise, something that Congress considered and rejected, uh, that the president wasn't able to secure over two years when Republicans controlled the Congress. I do think, uh, Margaret, we should take action to disapprove uh, of this um, excessive use of executive power uh, and make it clear that the Article I branch, the, con the Congress, is going to jealously defend our right um, to be the body that decides on federal spending and not let the president use this extreme measure as an end around uh, our appropriations process. If you do see a Democratic president in that office, uh, would you share the concern? Do you think Congress now needs to put some restrictions on uh, the executive's ability to declare a national emergency? Um, I do think that we should not set the terrible precedent of letting a president declare a national emergency simply as a way of getting around the congressional appropriation process. Presidents do have emergency powers. They can declare national emergencies. Uh, but if you look back at the history of that over the last four decades, um, they've overwhelmingly been done in the face of legitimate national security threats where there was no time or no other means of addressing them. I want to ask you about a foreign policy issue uh, as well. And you brought it up at the beginning of our conversation, and that's Syria. Senator Graham just made a pitch to our allies to commit boots, troops, to Syria. And 
promised that U.S. troops would stay alongside them. What do you make of that pitch? Well, this is where Senator Graham and I agree. And the delegation in the meetings that I've been in um, has been speaking up with one voice, saying that an abrupt and total withdrawal of all American forces from Syria would have a terrible consequence um, of handing our allies in the fight against ISIS, the Kurds, uh, over either to Iran uh, or uh, to the Turks, and that we should be working in partnership with our allies to make sure that we don't allow ISIS to reemerge and that we don't allow Iran and Russia to dominate Syria. Uh, I'll join Senator Graham in congratulating the president and our armed forces uh, in ending the ISIS caliphate. Uh, but I think for us to pull all of our forces, literally every American uh, soldier, out of Syria would be uh, disastrous. Um, so how and many it should would have stay? consequences, not just for Syria's security, but for our allies. How many should stay then? At most, a few hundred to secure both the Al-Tanf base that is blocking uh, Iran from having a highway right into and across Syria uh, and to secure a buffer zone between our Kurdish partners in the fight against ISIS uh, and the Turks. All right. Senator Coons, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. We'll be back in one minute with a lot more Face the Nation. Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd is standing by, so don't go away. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the sleep number store. Because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a sleep number bed. Sleep number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We're back with Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd. He joins us from his district in San Antonio this morning. Uh, Congressman, you are directly impacted by anything at the border since about 800 miles of it are in your home district. How is this emergency declaration going to impact your constituents? Well, I have 820 miles of the border. I'm the only Republican that represents a border town. And I spent almost a decade as an undercover officer in the CIA chasing bad guys um, all over the world. Um, how is this going to Im impact my district? Uh, first and foremost, I don't think we needed a, a national emergency declaration. Now, that is not a tool that the president needs in order to solve this problem. This is a problem that has existed for before Ronald Reagan. And what we need to be doing is, and, is, and remember, we just passed a, a piece of legislation that adds more technology, that has physical barriers in order to, to solve this problem. And I was just down on the border. I was in the Del Rio sector. The border is, is broken up into sectors. I was specifically in the city of Eagle Pass. 
and then I cross the border into Mexico into Piedras Negras, uh, they are dealing with a, a recent caravan. And guess what? There was unprecedented cooperation between the U.S. government and the Mexican government. We, we have to remember that most of the people that are coming here illegally are coming from Central America. Uh, they are not Mexican citizens. Um, in this one sector I visited, uh, 92% of the people that are coming there illegally are from Central America, and 80% of that is specifically uh, from Honduras. So this is a shared problem with us and Mexico. And in this new administration in Mexico, we've seen this level of cooperation to, to deal with this shared problem. We need to address things like Border Patrol pay. Mm -hmm. um, th th there's a reason that you know Border Patrol <laughs> has a retention problem. We don't have enough Border Patrol officers. We need additional technology. Everybody thinks that there's the latest and greatest technology along the border. It doesn't. This bill we passed uh, last uh, Friday, or this Friday recently, um, that got signed into law, has a program called the Innovative Tower Initiative, which is what I describe as the smart wall and uses technology to figure out what's going right. back and forth across our border. What but about this the executive? Go but, ahead. but what about the private property that is going to be seized <clears throat> to build the wall that the president is saying he's going to do? That must impact your constituents. Oh, absolutely. In the great state of Texas, we care about a little thing called private property. And there's going to be over 1,000 ranchers and farmers potentially impacted if the government comes in and takes their land. And listen how they do it. They say, hey, we need this land. Here's what we're going to give you. And they get to automatically take it. And then the, the rancher or the landowner has to go in and fight in court to make sure that they're at a minimum getting what they, 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 they owe or owed um, because of the, the price of the land. In some places, in, in a part of, the, of the, where the, the, the wall is being designed or they think they want to build the wall, we're going to be seeding 1.1 million acres of arable land. This That's is land tremendous. that can be, it, it's, it's crazy. Congressman, um, I've got to crazy. take a break here, so we're going to continue it on the other side. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We're continuing our conversation with Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd. Uh, to pick up where we left off, uh, we were talking about how your home district is going to be impacted by this emergency declaration. Today, White House senior advisor Stephen Miller told uh, Fox News' Chris Wallace that the White House has the authorities to build a couple hundred miles by the end of the next appropriations cycle, which is September 2020. You sit on House appropriations. Can Congress or the courts stop the administration from getting the money to do this? Well, this, the, what this, this national emergency declaration does is it says the president is going to obligate funds, so he's going to take funds from other places, but you can't spend 
$8 billion in the next six months. Um, and so what I think you're going to see in the next appropriation cycle is restricting some of that funds. And then the question you have is when it comes to military construction, right? Can you take funds from that was going to be used to constructing things in the military? And, and you, you outlined a couple of items um, earlier in this segment. Um, but how about the fact that in my district, in Del Rio, Texas, um, this produces more pilots than any other facility in the United States of America. If it rains more than an inch, um, the flight line gets flooded and they can't train. We've been working on fixing that. We're trying to get more additional funds. Uh, if you're going to reprogram money, th- that's a good place to, to spend that kind of money rather than trying to, to build a wall. And we have to remember, there's already 654 miles of wall or barrier or whatever you want to call it, steel fencing. Um, the president has already been authorized over $55 million in this last appropriation bill. He was able to, to reauthorize $750 million within um, Homeland Security. My concern is our government wasn't designed to operate by national emergency. Unfortunately, a Congress that, that existed before I was born um, usurped some of their power, gave some of their power away to the executive branch. Our government was designed for the, the most ultimate power, the power of the purse, to reside within Congress, and we shouldn't have an executive. I don't care if it's Republican or Democrat that tries to get around Congress with this national emergency declaration. So would you That's support a resolution important. to try to stop the president from doing that? I would support something that reviews who can, how you de- de- declare a national emergency. I would support something uh, that prevents, that actually is going to prevent uh, taking money out of military construction. That's going to go to our men and women who are, who are willing to put on a uniform, put themselves in harm's way, and they need to make sure that we have the tools to, that they're properly trained and they're properly equipped to do things. So I'm, I'm always open to making sure that Congress takes back some of its power as a co-equal branch of government. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of conversations. We're almost in uncharted territory because I think, based on my research, this is one of the first times that there's been a disagreement between the executive branch and Congress on what is indeed a, a national emergency. It sits a, a dangerous precedent, but there will be a lot of people focusing on this over the next couple of weeks. So to be clear, you are saying that this wall that you don't think the United States needs mm-hmm. on national security grounds will actually adversely impact national security because it will hurt the readiness of some of these military bases in your district? If you're taking money away from the military, we just spent the last four years rebuilding our military, making sure the men and women in in our armed forces have the tools that they need. I don't want to see that that money being taken away from that. Um, this We went through a number of hearings and investigations in order to figure out where that money needs to go. And so that is how our government is supposed to operate. Uh, and you're yes, confident have- that Congress can stop that money from being raided from those military construction funds, the $3.6 billion. Uh, I, I would say that people are going to be exploring how that can ultimately be done because we're in uncharted territory. But I want to also make it clear that um, $67 billion worth of drugs are coming into our country. Uh, 400,000 people came to our country illegally last year. Um, we, we have a problem at our border. We don't have what I call operational control of our border, meaning we know everything that's going back and forth across our border. So this is a problem. Mm-hmm. And the only way 
we solve the problem is looking at all 2,000 miles of our southern border at the same time. And the only way you can do that is with manpower and technology. In some places, a physical barrier makes sense where there's urban-to-urban contact. Again, we already have 654 miles right. of, of physical barrier. So we got to be thinking about the strategy, not a focus on just one tool within that strategy. Congressman, thank you very much for joining us this Sunday. We will be right back with our panel. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. We want to bring in our panel now for some political analysis. David Nakamura covers the White House for The Washington Post. Rachel Bade covers Congress, and she has just moved over to The Washington Post. She's also a CNN political analyst. We want to welcome Eugene Scott to this broadcast. He's also with The Washington Post. And Leslie Sanchez is a CBS News contributor and a very familiar face to our viewers who tune in to CBSN, our digital network. Uh, Leslie, let me start with you. Uh, you heard the president lay out his case for this emergency. New York Times, though, in terms of writing about the fallout, said it was the most punishing defeat Mr. Trump has experienced as a president. Do you agree? I- I don't think Republicans are going to agree on that. What's interesting, I was speaking to a lot of the legislative leaders and business leaders along the Texas-Mexico border, and they feel this is not a real solution, but a political one. But if you look at the fact that there's a tremendous amount of baseline support to secure the border, where the president does not have the support, is over 60 percent, according to what Gallup has been looking at and some other research, don't support the idea of a physical wall. So when it's it's parsing those words. I think, Margaret, if he can show he is securing with both technology, technical information, infrastructure, human capital, you know, all the things that border enforcement is saying they need, then I think he's going to get a legislative win on that. However, if it just looks like a contiguous a t- contiguous border, he's not. And I, I do want to point out the fact the president has walked that back. Mm-hmm. He was n- on numerous occasions saying, I want to the, the wall go the entire 2,000 mile border, but that's not the reality. So for that, with that extent and that in mind, I think we're making progress. Can I just follow up on, you know, your mention that this is a political solution. Republicans on the Hill feel the same way. Way, and they're uh, very annoyed in some cases that they're being sort of unwittingly dragged into the president's 2020 reelection effort. You know, the president feels the Trump and that declaring this emergency is going to help his own reelection. But this is dividing lawmakers. And you just saw that with your interviews right there with Will Hurd saying this was a bad idea, that he could see uh, constituents have their land seized and that it would be taking money from the military with people like Lindsey Graham saying, oh, you know, this is going to secure our country. And so right now it's really dividing the party. It's just real quick on that part. And also in the con- 
conference, there was a, a big point of saying not only with, with Congressman Hurd, but uh, Congressman Henry Cuellar, who was also on the board of the Democrat, saying we want topography, the local law, you know, leaders to be involved in the discussion because you don't want to be building, you know, eminent domain on right. people's lands, the issues of livestock and using the Rio Grande for other purposes. So there's a lot of uh, disagreement on how that's done. But now that the, the president is backpedaling on how you secure the border, I think there can be a positive. I would add one thing, which is whether this is a win or a loss for the president. I mean, the president wants to be seen as the ultimate winner here. But just look at his news conference in announcing this. It took him about five minutes to even get to the idea that he was declaring a national emergency. He was acknowledging it was probably going to be stopped in court. He didn't act like a winner in sort of announcing this in the Rose Garden the way uh, he did. Um, he took questions on a lot of other topics, which is fine. We want to hear him make news. But if he really believed in what he was doing here, believed this was a really, truly winning strategy, I think he would, you would have seen a, a much more uh, determinative uh, announcement in the way that he rolled that out. So one of the reasons I believe that the president was not able to communicate the national emergency in a winsome way is because it's not winsome. It's widely unpopular with many people outside of his base, which is where the majority of voters are. We know that this is an approach that is popular with Republicans who back Trump, but we know that he won because so many independents came over to support him, and he needs those votes as well if he's going to do well in 2020. And recent polling, especially after the midterm, shows that he's not doing well with those voters. Rachel, I want to ask you about uh, the other news we have here from uh, that tremendous interview of 60 Minutes and Andrew McCabe. Look, McCabe's gone. Jim Comey is gone. There is a new attorney general, Bill Barr, who's now on the job. And Senator Lindsey Graham is now in the chairmanship of the Judiciary Committee. So where does all of this head next? Uh, that story is not over. McCabe may be gone. Rosenstein is uh, heading toward the exits. But this whole notion about this 25th Amendment and whether there was actually a conversation uh, to try to oust the president or see if there was support to oust the president, Republicans are going to continue in that vein. And it's interesting from this interview, it looks like Lindsey Graham, as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, is going to pick up right where House Republicans left off when they lost the majority and Democrats took over. You know, before uh, the past two years, Republicans in the House, they've sort of been doing this investigate the investigator, uh, sort of an inquiry about whether there's bias at the FBI or the Justice Department. That has gone away. They've lost their subpoena power. Uh, and Graham is showing that he's not only going to pick that up, he potentially is going to go even further by telling you that he is willing to subpoena uh, Rosenstein and bring in McCabe to actually ask him what happened with these conversations. And where does that fit in, Eugene, to the political strategy here in terms of laying the groundwork for the Mueller report? Well, I would imagine that in part it is to keep people questioning Mueller and the bias uh, that the president believes exists within uh, the FBI that's working against him. It's, it's the whole witch hunt idea just taken to the next step, um, trying to put some meat some uh, on those bones and looking at people like Lindsey Graham to be able to do that and argue that the president's suspicions are credible and they're not irrational. Uh, whether or not they're actually going to be able to do that, uh, people are still waiting to see. But what we do know is that most Americans, according to polling we have in The Washington Post, want to see this investigation continue uh, because they do believe that Mueller is more likely to be credible uh, than the president himself. Um, David, switching gears here, we heard overnight that Heather Nauert, who had been at the State Department as an undersecretary and as a spokesperson there, is withdrawing her name from consideration to be the next U.N. ambassador. What happened? Why did she do that? 
What we understand is that her nomination was languishing in part because uh, her own team had not even forwarded all their necessary paperwork to the Senate committee that would have to do her oversight hearing. And I think the reason now we're finding out is that she actually employed a nanny uh, who was in the country legally from another country, uh, but had not been necessarily had a work permit to work here legally. Taxes were not being paid on time. Uh, Now it had apparently flagged this internally, uh, but it's become something of an issue of uh, this potentially being a problem and a disqualifying uh, a measure, uh, something that would be embarrassing uh, not only to her family, uh, but also could stand in the way from the Senate moving forward. This is a blow to the administration, though, because um, she's certainly someone I think that the president had grown to trust uh, in her role as a spokeswoman at the State Department. Uh, and he'd had his own, uh, the President Trump had had his own problems with uh, the previous uh, UN uh, Secretary Nikki Haley in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he believes this would be someone who would be very loyal to him. But uh, he, they now seem to be making the decision to move on. Leslie, is it disqualifying? Uh, for some, it is. And for some, it's not. It just reminds me of the 1993 nanny gate when you had the revelations, you know, that Bill Clinton was trying to nominate not one, but two attorney generals that both had issues with nannies who were undocumented. But in more recent history under Bill Clinton, and even if you think about under Trump, Wilbur Ross, who had undocumented, perhaps they didn't pay taxes on people that worked domestically in their household, they managed to get through. So they're threading that needle. I don't think, I think it's changed a lot uh, in that conversation. But again, going back to our first topic, it becomes an issue of labor and undocumented individuals working in these households and not paying taxes. Rachel, you know, some have put this in the context of the president has had this happen with a few different nominees or at least people he said he's going to nominate. Is the White House really setting up their selections for success? The president's tweeting this morning blaming Democrats for stalling his ambassadors from being confirmed. Yeah, I mean, look, that's just a way to sort of shift the narrative and try to point the finger. I mean, there's been complaints, including by some Republicans on the Hill. The White House does not do enough to vet people before they actually put them forward. Um, and so, yeah, this is this has been an issue. I mean, Mick Mulvaney, uh, now the acting chief of staff, he had his own issue uh, with not paying taxes for, again, I believe it was a nanny. Um, so, again, this is a, it's an embarrassment for the administration. And Republicans would like to see them button that up before they actually move people forward. And it comes on the heels of all this reporting in the Washington Post and other places, the New York Times, about the president's own employment of undocumented workers at his golf club for years uh, at a time that he was running for president uh, and railing on the use of undocumented immigrants, uh, now declaring this a national emergency. So this would have fed into uh, all sorts of other questions that Congress uh, and certainly Democratic lawmakers will want to ask. Eugene, we had two of our senators as guests from Munich, from the security conference, and uh, there's been a lot said about the importance or the statement being made to have such a big congressional delegation at what is a conference built around celebrating alliances, Mm -hmm. something that the administration is often criticized for not valuing enough. You had former Vice President Biden there, you know, the current Vice President uh, Mike Pence there. What was the reaction like in terms of uh, Pence's message to the room? Well, for the most part, it was silent. Uh, there was a lack of confidence in uh, the message that Mike Pence was delivering, uh, suggesting that the America first uh, mindset that the president has been campaigning on and leading uh, since entering the Oval Office is of the best interest for the world as a whole. On multiple occasions, uh, lines that he's used to st- T- uh, receiving applause and taking breaks for were met with silence, in part because we know that many of our European allies do not see uh, the United States as any longer a world leader when it comes to security issues and, and boldly disagree with much of what the president has put forward. And it's telling uh, to see how surprised Pence himself was that he wasn't met with the same type of um, support that he usually is met with when he's making these same statements on the campaign trail or within uh, groups and here in the States that uh, have used 
are used to supporting him and backing what the president believes to be in the best interest for the country and the world. And David, in contrast to that, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, was well received. Her remarks, uh, it it was noted, she said she doesn't understand how possibly her country could be called a national security threat when BMWs are made in the United States these days. It was almost like a laugh line uh, at the president's trade policies here and saying here that he's um, vacating space to Iran. Uh, Our closest allies are really at a distance. Yeah, it's no surprise that Angela Merkel's been at odds with President Trump, but she seemed in this case to be unbound by any concerns about her own political future, given that she's uh, probably not, as I said, she won't uh, pursue another uh, term as chancellor. But think about this. I was thinking about last September at the U.N. General Assembly in New York. President Trump came up and said he'd done more than any other president in two years. He got laughed at. Uh, he went to uh, France and Paris uh, for the 100th year anniversary of World War I. Uh, and Emmanuel Macron, the French president, came up and delivered a very pointed rebuke of, of nationalism and things that Trump has talked about, with Trump right there in the audience. And now Vice President Pence goes to this Munich security conference and basically agrees with silence. I mean, what's worth getting laughed at or having sort of radio silence? Uh, I'm not sure what's worse, but there continues to be this message, and Angela Merkel on, on her final sort of tour here uh, in the next couple of years will be uh, continuing to deliver this uh, you know, pointed rebuke of Trump. I think that that's why you saw a lot of lawmakers joining at Munich uh, this weekend, because they wanted to go there to reassure our allies that we are still uh, on your side. I mean, former Vice President uh, Joe Biden also gave this speech to the audience talking about how when I travel around the country and I talk to Americans, Americans still see you guys as vital to uh, important to our national security, that uh, we still want to be in NATO and we're not looking at leaving NATO. Even the president uh, had talked about doing such a couple of weeks ago. So you're seeing this sort of bipartisan pushback on the president, including several votes in the House and the Senate, where they've actually rebuked the president's foreign policy. So we're just going to have to see, as time goes on, are more Republicans breaking with him on that to push back and sort of reclaim our standing in the world? I think it's an important point, and we'll leave it there uh, on that. Also interesting that Vice President Biden, former Vice President, was there. Uh, We haven't heard a lot from those who are expected to throw their hat into the ring for 2020 on national security, but uh, he staked that out at least for the weekend. We'll be back in a moment with former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com slash save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. Legacybox.com slash save. We're back with former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, who's here to talk about his new book, Beyond Charlottesville, Taking a Stand Against White Nationalism. It's out in July and looks at what led to the violent Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville and how Virginia and the country continue to deal with racism. Good to have you here. Certainly your state of Virginia continues to deal with racism. The governor, uh, Northam, who we heard from last week, has refused to resign. 
uh, despite near universal calls among elected Democrats to do so. Can he survive? Yes, I think he's made the decision he's going to stay in. But the way that Ralph survives and brings Virginia back together, he's got to lean in on these very important issues, which I talk about in the book. He's got to use executive authority as governor. You know, I used executive authority. I took the Confederate flag off the Virginia license plates. I banned the box on any state employment forms. And as you know, uh, I restored the felon rights of 173,000 individuals, more than any governor in U.S. history. I was sued by the Republicans. We ultimately won. And the reason I was so adamant about doing that was because of Virginia's racial history. It goes back to the Jim Crow laws. In 1902, a state senator disenfranchisement of felons, a poll tax, and a literacy test. To put it in our Constitution, and his quote that day is, I'm doing this to eliminate the darkie from being a political factor in Virginia. Well, 114 years later, I was a new sheriff in town, and I was able to enfranchise all these people to give them a second chance. And this is what our leadership in Virginia needs to do. We need to lean in. Uh, we've had a horrible history. You look at Charlottesville. Margaret, I can't even say to you on TV what I heard that day against members of the African-American community and members of the Jewish faith. These people walking down the streets, you know, they used to wear hoods. They used to do it at night because they were embarrassed. They don't feel they have to wear hoods anymore, and they can do it in broad daylight. Something has gone wrong in our country. And I talk in the book about how we got to bring our country back together again. Mm-hmm. we got to deal with the issues of the past, but we need to go forward. What about the Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, who faces sexual assault charges? Can he survive? Very serious uh, allegations have been made. They need to be investigated. He has called for an investigation. The two women have called for an investigation. I believe this week in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. they've opened up an investigation. And I believe the Duke University has opened up an investigation. So we will go through that process. What I'm hoping now is what has happened here that, you know, we're a great state. And I was very proud as governor. I eliminated all the horrible biases that we had. Remember when I came into office, the Republicans had wanted to shut all the women's clinics down. We had horrible legislation against women, the transvaginal bill, horrible legislation against members of the LGBT. We got rid of all that. We became open, welcoming. That's why we got Amazon. There was no question. You know, I put the I bid in. I want to ask you about that. Yeah, that's <laughs> why do. we got Amazon. You cannot succeed <laughs> as a governor. You cannot grow your state unless you're perceived as open and welcoming to everyone. Well, so New York, as you know, Amazon pulled out of New York after they had bid for this yeah. facility there. But some of the outcry locally and then nationally from progressives was saying this is a, a win against big corporations. This is a win for a little guy, the little guy. I mean, for you, what do you think the impact is? Does this in any way, paint the Democratic Party as well as anti-business? I certainly hope not. Uh, listen, I put the bid in for Amazon in September 17 while I was governor. Before I put the bid in, I worked with my state legislators. I worked with all of the local communities in Northern Virginia and Richmond and Hampton Roads. So when our bid went in, everybody was all in. I cannot for the life of you understand after this bid went in, why the locals came out against it. You should have done the due diligence before you submitted the bid. It just doesn't make any sense. But more importantly, our bid, and we won, and we're going to create 25 up to 37,000 jobs in Virginia, high-paying jobs. You've got to build an economy for the future. I just read a report that artificial intelligence will eliminate 40% of the world's jobs in the next two decades. 
you better be creating new 21st century jobs. We welcome Amazon. Now, they don't get any money until they come in, create the jobs, and pay the taxes. It's all how you structure the deal. So if Jeff Bezos, if you're watching here, uh, thank you for coming to Virginia. You don't want to go to New York? I would tell you, bring the other jobs to Virginia. We are an open, welcoming, dynamic state. We're the number one state for cyber, for data, for unmanned systems. I've got to, before I let you go, though, ask you, March 31st, you set as your deadline to announce yeah. whether you're running for president. What are you waiting for? Is it Joe Biden? I'm not. I have spoken with the vice president. Uh, I've made hundreds and hundreds of calls across the country, uh, talked to potential staff. And listen, we're close to make a decision. I want to see where the field is. I do think we need in this race a uh, progressive governor who was very jobs oriented, very successful in economic development. Mm -hmm. They're not mutually exclusive. A governor is a CEO. We build roads. We fix roads. Uh, We do need governors in this race because, you know, we don't just get to talk all day. We got to deliver every single day. Well, we'd love to have you back and talk about it when you're ready to make a decision. Governor. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons, Republican Congressman Will Hurd of Texas, and former Virginia Governor Terry McCauley. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Pauley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow the show and CBS News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., 6 p.m. Eastern, and Sunday. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.
Hey everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show, coming out every Thursday. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? Listen to The Weekly Show with John Stewart wherever you get your podcasts.